Hey, family, this is David Mahan, and uh, there's going to be some sensitive content being shared in this particular podcast, so uh, definitely not appropriate for children. Just wanted to give you that, that heads up. Our movement is incredibly effective at winning court cases and at protecting these freedoms in legislatures, and the left has largely bypassed those things through this strategy and have figured out how to de facto regulate people without ever having to win a court case, without ever having to get a law passed. And so we have to show up and make the case for why the values and freedoms that we care about should be important to the business community. And welcome back to The Narrative. This is Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Baer here with my co-host, David Mahan, where we're unpacking the toughest issues of the day. Uh, we're doing this uh, this series right now on well, capitalism. I have a great guest uh, this week, Jeremy Tedesco. He's a senior corporate counsel over at Alliance Defending Freedom. You know, ADF has has really been on the uh, forefront of the battle over religious freedom on, on a lot of the life issues, um, on, on a lot of the marriage and family issues. And I think it it is just telling. It shows why. Uh, we're doing this season on woke capitalism. Why you know CCV we're we're doing things like starting the Christian Business Partnership uh, right now and really investing in this space. When you see a group like ADF uh, who's been in a certain wheelhouse for a, a long time and they're adding this in, right? I, I wouldn't call it a shift, but they've just recognized, uh, like we have, like that that all of the issues that we deal with, um, they're converging over here in corporate America right now. And it's, it's an area that we have to come up with solutions uh, to address or else we're going to be in big trouble as our nation. Uh, so so be sure to stick to, stick around for that. Uh, that conversation, Jeremy's phenomenal. And what ADF is doing is great. Uh, but uh, but I want to actually go back to, you know, the first thing I said when, when we kick off the podcast is we're unpacking uh, the toughest issues of the day. Um, and there could not be more uh, of a tough issue uh, right now than, than something that's happening right here in Ohio that's that's making national news. Um, and that was that is uh, the rape of a 10 year old girl uh, from Columbus uh, who went to Indiana uh, to get an abortion. Uh, she was uh, six weeks and three days, uh, according to news reports. Um, and, you know, we we talked uh, we talked a lot last last episode david about just the the broad um sort of pro-life perspective on this right i i don't think we need to go go relitigate that if you're interested in that conversation you you can go listen to it and at the time though we framed it in the context of uh you know it's untrue it's unsure if this is a true story or not right. but but it is something you know we we wanted to we always want to kind of help folks think through things right that's that's really the reason we started this podcast more than anything is help folks see what's happening around them and process it. And so, you know, it's, it is just the reality of our broken and fallen world, whether this specific case was true or not, this could happen. So how should we think about it if it does? Um, well, now, now it's, you know, there, there, for the last few days, there's been more and more questions about whether this story was true. And then just literally an hour ago, two hours ago, um, the actual police report from Columbus police came out and said, yes, indeed, this, this did happen in Columbus. Uh, it was uh, apparently an illegal immigrant that, that uh, raped this young girl and, and, uh, and you know, basically she got taken off to, to Indiana for this abortion. Um, and, you know, David, I, what I appreciated was when we were prepping for the episode, um, you know, I, I came in and said, hey, you know, we, I think we should talk about this. How do we do it? Um, and, and I thought you had a really good point. I just want to let you 
would, as we're talking about these things, help us think through how we should uh, process them? One of the most disturbing things I would say for me is, you know, you first, okay, you saw Biden came out, um, they had a press conference. Um, as soon as he said, you know, there was a 10-year-old girl in the state of Ohio, and now because of the law, you would force her um, to carry to term the child of her rapist. When he said child, he stumbled, then he said it again, and then stumbled even longer. Because you could see just people off screen, you know, saying, don't say child, don't don't call it a baby. You know, so many times in, in the hearings, it's neonate, it's, it's fetus. Um, but I, what's interesting after the overturning of Roe is that so many people are actually calling it what it is. This is a child. And it's very disturbing, one, that it happened to a 10-year-old girl. It's very disturbing, too, that, yes, she has to make another decision here. Hey, really, the first decision here as to what, you know, what she has to do. And this is, this is I think we as, as people should be able to say both things, that, yes, this girl being raped is horrible. But can we also bring ourselves to say that, yes, it's horrible that she would be asked to murder her own offspring? to kill her own child and and to think that that would not be equally as disturbing and traumatic to that 10 year old. Um, yeah. And just the response to that, that we have to be on one or the other, you know, we don't want this 10 year old girl who's been raped to have to carry a, a child to term, but yet that's the worst thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's watching that kind of play out in social media and in the news has been really disturbing. Yeah, and, and I think the, the 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 struggle on on this right now is um you know, especially you you know, and, and David is a far more moral man than I am as he's not oh, on Twitter. Right. Um but uh, on Twitter right now you just have um everyone trying to dunk on everybody else, uh, trying to trying to make their point and and drive it home. Um, and you know, there's, I I feel the impulse to get outside. Well, listen, this is what, this is what we've been saying. This is what we've been talking about. We've been addressing this issue head on. Um, and, and the, the problem with this though, is that, um, you know, it ultimately we, we get lost in the fact that there was a 10 year old girl raped. That's right. Yeah. And, and there was, um, there was also, uh, another child that lost their life. Yeah. Who, who does she have around her? Who, who's yeah. nurturing this child? Who's caring for this child? Um, who's walking her through this process? That, those are the, the, that's the story I want to hear, you know, um, and the media doesn't care. Uh, doesn't seem like anybody really cares about the 10 year old child uh, and, uh, and, and, and what, what she's got to do here going forward. But um, yeah, that, that's my biggest piece. And uh, you know, it, when you have the media come out that fast and with no facts, you know, no report, no criminal report, no charge, um, that's disturbing as well, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I can see us definitely hitting that. Um, we see that over and over again where they just jump out front. They don't care about the facts. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But that's not the most pressing thing in my mind. Yeah, no, exactly. There, there's a lot of things um, that that uh, surround the story, a lot of, you know, a lot of other aspects um and you know as i've been thinking through how do we talk about this um one i want to get defensive with with people that are now going out there saying see this did happen look how terry and 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 respond to that and 
you know, I think there's a, a side of this. There's, there's a bunch of different parts of this, I think, from a, a Christian perspective that we need to think through. I think one, um, you know, we have an explicit commandment to not be quarrelsome, right? Um, and that's a, that's a hard, I, I will readily uh, confess uh, to um, not always knowing what, what that looks that like because there's there, there's certainly times where you want to stand up in defense of justice you want to stand up in defense of um uh, of uh, of stopping murder of unborn children or stopping you know this sexual revolution that's chemically castrating kids you know when, when we come out there and say we want to pass the safe act are we being quarrelsome then i i don't i don't think so for, for me where i i end up trying to draw the line is am i am i responding to this person because i think they hurt my pride you know, am, am I am I doing this out of a a, a desire to um, prove my point, save my face, do, do, do something like that? Um, and and especially in a case like this, where um, you know everyone's talking about it, it's the it's the big point, and you know that, that that's where my my instinct is to run out and and do that. Um, and what that ultimately does is it 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 makes me the center of the story or, or whoever that is doing it, the center of the story, as opposed to, you know, I think the point that you made Dave really well is actually it's this 10 year old girl and her child that are the center of the story right. and, and the tragedy that it happens to them, you know? Yeah. 10 year old girl and her child. Yeah. That's the way it needs to be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and 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 just being okay with at times. I don't have to win every argument. I don't have to, uh, you know, be the one that's coming out looking the strongest, the smartest, the cleverest uh, in every interaction. Um, that's uh, that's vanity of vanities, uh, right there. Um, well, I want to jump onto a, another story uh, that that is impacting kids, um, and you know, uh, unfortunately, whereas the 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 rape of a ten year old that goes and gets an abortion is a very rare story. Uh, this story uh, is is less and less rare, uh, and it was just uh, one more story where I saw a two year old uh, who died uh, from fentanyl contact, and this happened in the city of Columbus. Um, I will wager to say uh, wherever you're listening to, odds are something like this happened not too far from you and not too long ago. Um, it's it's a story that's happening uh, more and more. Um, and again, this is what I think everybody would unite you know, and say, hey, yeah, that's a terrible story. You know, the, the, the parents of this child have gone to prison now um, and, you know, they just haven't fentanyl all, all that. But again, that stopping the conversation at isn't fentanyl terrible um, and aren't these parents awful for exposing their kid to, to fentanyl and this, the kid ultimately died um, doesn't actually help stop the problem big picture right it's, it's a little bit like we've been talking about with abortion which is yeah we can we can ban abortion but until we actually deal with the 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 sort of upstream issues that went along with it the sexual revolution the the separating mother and child the uh, viewing children as a burden not a blessing until we deal with those issues we're not going to make this issue completely go away we needed to make it illegal we need to continue to fight for for good laws but we have to recognize that's not the whole story um, I think this is a, another issue where you can't separate the the rise and prevalence of fentanyl use from what we're seeing with marijuana today, right, Dave? Right. We just last night I was in a in an event and you know did the whole thing and one one lady comes up and she says, well, yeah, Dave, you know marijuana. She's an older lady, so you know she's probably thinking about the dope she used to smoke, <laughs> uh, you know, back in the days that that hippie high she was getting where you know marijuana was still two five percent THC. 
And she's like, Dave, what's the big deal? We, we really need to be talking about fentanyl. And I said, man, we are. Yeah. We are talking about fentanyl. Because when you talk about opening up and commercializing, you know, any kind of drug, um, what you're also at the same time saying is that you're, you're opening the door for more black markets. Um, you'll never be able to beat them. Um, and black markets thrive not only on cheaper drugs, but more dangerous drugs, drugs that's going to give you a more crazy high that everybody's going to hear about in the street. And so when you talk about fentanyl in the state of Ohio, um, nobody's just going out just, you know, using raw fentanyl. They're, they're lacing other things with fentanyl. And right and now they're not starting on fentanyl. They're not just waking up right. one day saying, let me try some fentanyl. up." That's right. Um, everybody starts with heroin usually starts with uh, marijuana. Um, and, and so. Um, it's a gateway drug, whether we like to admit it or not. But one of the reports that we're seeing over and over again, and so I've been researching this for quite a while, but starting in 2022, I'm just getting more and more reports from um, local and statewide health departments as well as law enforcement as, you know, about cannabis being laced with fentanyl. Um, you know, it started out like, well, this is kind of a rumor, but no, now we're hearing from law enforcement departments and health departments. So um, you can't talk about fentanyl being an issue without talking about the commercializing of marijuana being an issue in the state of Ohio. And and you can't talk about the commercializing of marijuana without talking about medical marijuana. Mm. Uh, so and now we want to talk about medical marijuana. Yeah, no, I, now I was fighting medical marijuana when you man. were still going... <laughs> In classrooms, playing laser tag with kids out of camp. I, I was fighting medical marijuana before you thought it was cool. Now, all of a sudden, This man going to clown my livelihood the, right here on the podcast. I'm just saying. The, just, <laughs> I'm trying to win yeah, souls. Uh, yeah, with laser tag. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. David used to run a youth camp. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but it is... Again, we, we just had a, this, this pop up here. Uh, I saw a story of this out of Kentucky. Um, where you know most of the states, what they end up doing, and it seems like a very reasonable position, yeah. which is to say, oh, we're going to bring medical marijuana in, but I tell you what, all we're going to do, we're only going to bring it into the communities. We're not going to force you to open a medical marijuana shop in your community um, or f- allow them unless your community affirmatively says yes, which again sounds so reasonable, but is in many ways so stupid because ultimately all they need, again, the medical marijuana industry is just about building a financial base uh, to be able to yeah. bring recreational in. Again, there's a reason why medical marijuana is not distributed through hospitals. There's a reason why it's not distributed through pharmacies. Um, because these And these hospitals oppose it. It's yeah. because it's not, it's, it's not actually good for using to treat diseases. Does that mean that some people uh, can't use medical marijuana and get some benefits out of it? Sure, uh, of course you can. Yeah. Um, but there's, it's not safe uh, as an overall drug use uh, in, in that way. T- typically, you know, Cleveland Clinic said it best. Uh, when they wrote a letter opposing medical marijuana, most of the major health systems in Ohio have opposed it or said they were not prescribed writing prescriptions for it. But they said there is a difference between medical marijuana and medicine. Just clearly is that, right? So when somebody says that they've been benefited by medical marijuana, it's usually a component of, of medical marijuana, either CBD or THC that they benefited from. And when you break it down there, FDA is already approved the use of those components, right? But you don't smoke medicine and you don't find the whole plant itself as medicine at all. Uh, but if, you, if, if CBD is going to help, um, you know, somebody who's having seizures, we've got an FDA-approved version of that, Epidiolex. If uh, synthetic THC in very low doses and, um, is, is going to help you, we've got two 
versions, maybe a third coming um, with trials, that uh, the FDA is already approved of that. But you don't flood an entire state with the Schedule One narcotic. Uh, because really what they say is the average person who's been who's on medical marijuana, the average person, uh, according to a man who was the drug policy advisor for three presidents, said is a 32 year old white male uh, with with no history of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably a high video game user. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> who we're really talking about yeah. benefiting with medical marijuana. Yeah. Now, I, I, and again, this is just. This is the peak of the example of uh, the, the the name of this podcast, the narrative where um, at the end of the day with the, the marijuana industry and the drug issue generally, um, there is a, a predominant narrative that has driven the conversation, driven the policy debate that has no basis in reality. Um, and ultimately, the, the consequences are two-year-old kids that die of fentanyl exposure uh, because of how prevalent drugs have become uh, in our community. That's, that's kind of my point, though, Aaron. It, it's, it's just like with the 10-year-old thing. It's like it's all about narratives. It's all yep. about just storylines. Yep. You know, if you really want to know about how this policy, this drug policy, is going to impact Ohioans, why are there only white-collar dope dealers in the room and not treatment and recovery people? Law enforcement, who every major law enforcement agency in the state opposes it. All the drug court judges oppose it. If it's really about helping people with chronic pain, why are we not talking to people who really help people with chronic pain? Cleveland Clinic, you know, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, now you know why David's so popular with the other lobbyists is because he calls them <laughs> white-collar dope dealers. But uh, we're going to take a, a quick break here. Uh, we're going to be right back uh, with the narrative. We're going to have our interview with Jeremy Tedesco. Uh, don't go anywhere. Christian business owners today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. As corporate America and chambers of commerce fall prey to woke capitalism, Christians in the marketplace need an advocate to protect their First Amendment freedoms. As Ohio's only Christian chamber of commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to ccv.org slash cbp. That's ccv.org slash cbp. have a very special guest with us today from our good friends over at Alliance Defending Freedom, a, a, a guy I've, I've had the pleasure of working with for a number of years, even going back to my Arizona days. Uh, Jeremy Tedesco. Jeremy is Senior Counsel and Senior Vice President of Corporate Engagement at ADF. Uh, In this role, he leads ADF's effort to combat corporate cancel culture and build a business ethic that respects free speech, religious freedom, and human dignity. Uh, Before taking on this role uh, and and being all things taking on woke capitalism at ADF, Jeremy uh, litigated First Amendment cases at the highest levels. He was a part of the legal team that represented Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and to the the uh, all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court as well. Uh, he was also involved uh, in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and the Reed v. Town of Gilbert case, uh, which for all of my Arizona friends uh, out there that are sick of those signs uh, all over the signs poisoning your streets, you can blame Jeremy for that one uh, and the First Amendment, I guess. But uh, but also he worked on the Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization v. Win case. So Jeremy, uh, thanks so much for uh, for being here. Thanks for having me on, Aaron and David. I appreciate it. Yeah, so Jeremy, I think the best place to start, especially I think your background kind of 
tease this up really well, where ADF has been really involved in these free speech cases, uh, in these religious freedom cases like Jack Phillips case, um, you know, getting into this corporate side, this corporate America issue um, could seem a little bit uh, different to folks, a little bit out of place for an organization that says you guys care about uh, religious freedom. Uh, how did how and why did ADF decide to, to step into uh, th- this woke capitalism conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a couple pieces to it. I'll, you know, the first thing I'll say <clears throat> is we came to realize that concentrated private power is as great or even greater threat to free speech and religious freedom as government power, at least in the age in which we live with the digital public square and the concentrated power, for instance, uh, in private corporations over banking services and access to essential financial services. And so the reality is there's an incredible amount of concentrated power in the hands of private corporations over our ability to exercise our rights. Um, And you add to that this really important piece of it. And that is that a lot of the folks on the other side of these issues that are advocating for censorship, for a limited view of religious freedom and and, and those kinds of things, they know that their agenda is not popular at the polls. They know that it's very difficult. The First Amendment is an enormous obstacle to them promoting their agenda in the courts. They lose a lot of court cases to us. So what they've done is they've gone to the C-suites of these Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies and largely without any kind of contest or you know, pushback from folks on the conservative religious side of these issues, have convinced these corporations to adopt the very kind of policies that allow for censorship and you know, the restriction of religious freedom in these private corporations, and then urge demand that these corporations use those policies to censor people, to, to, to punish them for exercising you know, these essential freedoms. And so in many ways, our movement is incredibly effective at winning court cases and at protecting these freedoms in legislatures. And the left has largely bypassed those things through this strategy and have figured out how to de facto regulate people um, without ever having to win a court case, without ever having to get a law passed. And so we have to show up and make the case for why the values and freedoms that we care about should be important to the business community. So, Jeremy, this is a really important point you talked on. And I think it's one that I know a lot of people struggle with. And it's one of the things we try to do with the narrative is help people think these things through, because I think for a long time, we've been on the side of free speech. We've been on the side of saying, hey, government, you can't tell a private business what to say, what to do. I mean, that's what the Jack Phillips case was, right? We were all about that. Well, now we're in this case where a lot of times folks will start saying if Twitter blocks an account or silences an account, hey, that's a violation of, of free speech. And it's like, well, no, that's not the government. You know, the government, they're not the government. There's no First Amendment uh, rights for somebody in a, a, a private space like that. But that a lot of times, I, even for me, that that's a struggle. It's one of those things that feels to come up short because platforms like Twitter, platforms like like Facebook, um, those are, there, there's no comparison to those, right? And there's no, um, there's, there's no alternative really to, to get to that's on the same level, at least. Um, how did, how do you think that through what's, what's your thought process on it? And, and, and I think that'll actually get to, to what some of the things you guys are doing about this. Yeah. So especially with the social media platforms, I mean, one one way to, to, to respond to this this issue, and you're right, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private corporations, and, and we're not advocating that. 
And we're not trying to file First Amendment lawsuits against private corporations who are in, engaging in these censorship activities. Now, I want to say there could be uh, some legal protections, some legal provisions that these corporations are violating by engaging in censorship. Um, there could be antitrust problems because of the concentration of power that just a handful of corporations have over free speech, especially in the way that they operate almost like a cabal, where if one censors one, someone, then all of them do. I mean, this is a real problem. And I think there are antitrust and consumer protection angles to protect against some of these things that are not free speech, First Amendment kind of lawsuits, but they're lawsuits that nevertheless can get at the heart of some of these problems. Um, but in the end, many of these social media platforms, just to take one of these kind of businesses and, and industries and pull them out of the mix and say, they have all made commitments that they are operating forums for speech, that they are committed to giving people the freedom to have a voice and express their views. Um, and so the question then becomes, are they adopting policies and enforcing standards in a way that's consistent with that commitment? And the answer is obviously not. And a huge part of the problem, really, we think the source of the problem on these social media platforms is the policies. They are adopting policies that plainly would violate the First Amendment. So if the government adopted a, a, a speech policy, content moderation standards like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube have, they would be dead on arrival under the First Amendment. Well, we can't sue them to force them to respect speech and adopt better policies, but we certainly can make the case to them um, that they ought to, if they truly are want to respect free speech and want to be known as a platform where free speech is, is permitted and, and facilitated and celebrated, then they should have policies that conform to free speech standards. And so they're so far below the line that, you know, part of what we're trying to do is educate these companies about what does a free speech culture look like when it comes to trying to cultivate a platform that's open to different ideas and perspectives and avoids all this censorship, all this, you know, you know, um, you know, ratcheting down misinformation and all these things. I mean, all these standards that the social media companies have are they're completely vague. They leave it completely up to the employees on what speech is allowed and what speech is not. And, and you can't have free speech if those are the policies that run your platform. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up um, in terms of educating the corporations, right? Because it seems like when I'm in the community and everybody's talking to me about, you know, Dave, they, they want me to use pronouns. You know, Dave, they're talking about bathrooms and uh, and hospitals are talking about policies uh, for how we need to um, you know, to, to counsel individuals. And I don't know if I'm, if I'm able to do that, you know, my conscience, it will allow me to do that. And, but many of them will kind of just kind of say, this is just not practical for me to fight this battle, right? Like they feel obviously empowered to make these policies. Um, we don't see anybody else speaking into the other side, the other ear saying, uh, you know, wh why this should be dangerous for a corporation to, to implement these policies. Um, so most of them just give up. Right. So what would your what would your advice be to those individuals who are struggling uh, with decisions uh, that they have to make around these these policies that they're dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I think your question really highlights one of the big problems in this question about how to encourage corporations to not just continue to cave, continue to capitulate to what a lot of left leaning activists are demanding when it comes to policies, practices and other things. And that is that people who share the values we hold need to show up and communicate in a persuasive way 
about what we think, about the risks of the kind of policies we know that folks on the other side of these issues are advocating and why it's important to us to have a free speech culture on a platform or to have policies that respect our views related to marriage and human sexuality. Because lots of times us and many of our partners um, in our work related to corporations and corporate engagement tell us that when they have those conversations with, for instance, C-suite leaders, the first reaction they get from them is, I'm so glad you showed up and told me this. I know people like you are out there and I know that there's people inside of our organization that believe these things, but we just need to hear from you because once we hear from you and once we have a credible source of, you know, a different perspective on these issues, it makes us wait, makes it way easier for us to go into the boardroom or go into the C-suite meetings and say, maybe we shouldn't go down this path because there's other people we could alienate or, you know, workplace issues we could cause a disruption if we go down this path. So a huge part of it is our side of these issues, figuring out how to communicate effectively to corporations about why we place importance on a business culture that respects free speech and religious freedom, respects viewpoint and religious diversity inside their organizations. So Jeremy, to that end, do you, do you foresee one day, I'm, the, the whole preferred pronoun thing in corporate America is uh, everywhere, right? Everyone that's working in a, a larger company, they're seeing this, put your pronouns and your email signature on your tour, all that. Is there going to be litigation over that one day? Do you think is is this one of these things? That, and if someone who's listening to this is at one of those corporations or one of those law firms or one of those, how should they go about dealing with it if they feel like they're being forced to go along with just this idea that you can change your pronouns and change your gender and sexuality, sex, or yeah. sex? I should say these are really hard issues to navigate. You know, it's it's a little different depending on whether you're an employee of a public agency or a private company. And so you're going to have stronger protections. If you're a public agency, you're going to have free speech and other protections that you might not necessarily have if you're an employee at a private company. Employees at private companies are primarily going to have protections under Title VII or which protects religious against religious discrimination at, in private employee settings. Um, and there's state laws that provide similar protections. And, you know, I think, you know, you just have to navigate those things wisely and um, understand that if there is a work requirement that's that forces you to violate your beliefs related to these issues, then you have every right to request an accommodation. Um, and then the employer has a, a duty to try to accommodate that um, under the standards that apply under Title VII. Um, these are tough issues, though. And um, you know, we have, but I just want to make sure your audience understands we've, we've won cases on this issue um, at a public university. Um, and, you know, on behalf of a professor who was forced by the college to use pronouns. Um, that that he, was in Ohio and I'm pointing he, out. That's right. Uh, that was in your home it, state. Yeah, that's right. County state. And so th- we can win these cases. I think the other thing that people need to remember about this is I really do believe that corporations are going to get over their skis on these issues and, you know, ultimately force employees to do things that are outside the bounds of what they can under the law. And so I do think you're right. There will be litigation over these issues um, because there will be direct religious discrimination. There'll potentially even be hostile environment claims um, based on just the kind of forced conformity or, you know, silence. 
um, that the company policies are driving at on some of these really contentious issues. Well, Jeremy, I want to switch gears a little bit um, on an encouraging note, because some of that <laughs> some of that can be a little discouraging for somebody who's struggling right now uh, and working for a private entity. Um, but I think one of the encouraging things that you are doing is um, the viewpoint diversity score. So one, one of my jobs is to uh, talk to Matt Sharp over there. If you see him, tell him David from CCB said, hey, uh, he's been such a, a blessing to us here. We'll bring him in. He'll testify. He'll bring all this amazing precedent and, um, you know, knowledge that he brings. And then the first thing somebody uh, on the opposing side wants to say, what about the Southern, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center? So I want to talk about that. How much weight do they actually carry? But then you all have, uh, you know, your um, diversity score uh, and uh, the business index that I feel like is kind of to counteract that seems like to me, if you could explain. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the question. Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center, if your audience doesn't know, um, is a far less far left activist group that smears conservatives and religious groups and people who disagree with their far left agenda, especially as it relates to LGBT related issues. So, you know, if you are an effective group that does, you know, impactful advocacy or legal work, um, on, on those kinds of issues, you're at least going to be uh, listed on their hate watch blog, which is where they kind of list every organization and what they're doing uh, that they disagree with. But then some groups like where I work, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, make it all the way onto the hate group list. And it's pretty, I mean, it's really quite diabolical. They're, they're putting us on a list with the KKK and the Aryan Nation. And it's all just a fundraising scheme and ploy um, you know, to try to smear and attack organizations who they disagree with. Um, they don't want to have conversations. They don't want to have debate or dialogue. They just want to ad hominem attack people who disagree with them right. and are effective at what they do. So, you know, the reality is they've really diminished in their influence, I think, over the years. Um, and we've seen that they're getting far less pickup, uh, their hate group label, their hate speech, uh, you know, program doesn't get as much pickup in the media as it used to, uh, but they still wield a lot of influence and they wield influence within corporate America. Um, you know, one of the areas where we see this, uh, especially in a focused way, is with charitable giving. A lot of people have donor advised funds and they have donor advised funds because they want anonymity in their giving. That's one of the benefits of having a donor advised fund. And what SPLC and their allies have managed to do is convince many donor advised fund providers to screen donations through a political litmus test. And the political litmus test is essentially these blacklists that these activist groups put together, like the hate group list that SBLC has. And so they're starting to figure out how to diminish donations to organizations who work on the other side of issues. And yeah. so you know, this Jeremy, is I, I want to I just make yeah. a point right here because we actually, we there was a, and I won't mention specifically the foundation, but there was just a foundation here uh, in Ohio that uh, a supporter of ours wanted to make a, a write a check to actually another group that has shown up on the, uh, the, the hate list, the family research council. Uh, and uh, this, their foundation said, we're not going to let you send your money to FRC. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I've since connected them uh, with National Christian Foundation, which is an, another phenomenal donor advised fund that is not going to block Christians supporting groups like FRC or or CCV or ADF, um, but it's it's I think that's it's one of those things we've seen the left has really zeroed in and recognized that if they can 
you know, impact Christian charitable giving, they can have a massive, uh, massive impact. But you totally. were saying, I want to, I want to go back. Though, you were talking about that, the, the, yeah. the business uh, index and, and all that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but that it's, it's just this giving point, I think is one of those, those major things for people today is they're, they're thinking about where and how to do their, their charitable giving. Yeah. So I'll talk about that one more second and then I'll go to the index. So I, I do want people to understand though, that that same essential, like, campaign that they, they're running when it comes to charitable giving, SPLC and their allies are running that on all issues, access to banking services, social media censorship. I mean, their whole goal is to take their hate group list or their other blacklists and make them policy at these corporations. So there's where the threat to free speech and religious freedom comes from. Not only there, but we have to, we have to deal with the fact that folks on the other side of these issues that we advocate on are aggressively trying to get corporations to censor, de-platform and de-bank people who share our views. So we come to the party uh, with our Viewpoint Diversity Score website. So if you go to viewpointdiversityscore.org, you can get access to our business index. We just launched it in May, late May this year, um, the inaugural inaugural version of it. It's going to come out every year. It's an annual index. And what it does is it measures corporations respect for free speech and religious freedom um, you know and it does so across kind of three aspects of business what are their workplace policies and practices what are their market-based policies and practices how are they treating customers and vendors and then their public square activities are they supporting legislation litigation taking positions on contentious social issues in a way that undermines free speech and religious freedom and so we collected data we have a 42 uh, question scoring matrix um, and we gave these corporations scores on their respect for free speech and religious freedom. I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that it, they fell well below the bar that we set, but our index is about being kind of a comprehensive benchmark to set a goal and a standard for corporate behavior when it comes to these issues. And then I think most importantly, we really are trying to be constructive partners with the corporations. We have a whole suite of resources, model policies, guidelines and toolkits that corporations can use to understand how they're impacting free speech and religious freedom and to also recommend policy changes and other things they can do if they want to become known as a corporation that broadly respects the views of their workplace, you know, uh, of their customers, of their shareholders and of people in the broader public square. So Jeremy, this, this strategy, I, I love the concept of this and, and, but this strategy isn't necessarily something new in and of itself. It's something that uh, the left has been doing for for years with primarily the human rights campaign HRC uh, through what they call their equality index, um, and, and I think it's this is one of those uh, little un, little known pieces that has really shaped culture and corporate culture in particular over the last uh, decade, if not two decades. Can you just share a little bit about how? the left has effectively leveraged this strategy to, to, to bring us here. Cause I think it's a part of how a lot of folks have woken up all of a sudden and real and looking around saying, how did we get here? And, and I think the HRC equality index is a, a big part of that. Yeah. The HRC equality index, but it's the whole host of kind of leftward issues, whether it's environment, climate change, yeah. um, LGBT related issues, and that's done through the equality index you're talking about. The reality is a lot of what we perceive as kind of, you know, disparate, distinct corporate activism on issues that seems to be, you know, repeatedly left leaning is a product of these indexes and of shareholder advocacy and campaigns from the left. 
designed to push the corporations leftward on a whole host of issues that are really important to people. Um, and so the, the equality um, index is HRC has done it for almost 20 years now. Um, and they basically rank corporations on their friendliness related to a, a host of LGBT issues that they care about. And they really use it as a tool to force corporations further and further down the path of LGBT advocacy. And so it's a very effective tool um, and corporations really want to have a hundred percent score on that index. And what the H HRC does is every year they add a, another layer of, you know, demands to get to the hundred. So that's why you keep seeing corporations seeming like they're digging even deeper into that area of issues because the HRC is driving them in that direction through their index. So part of what our index is, is a counterweight to those kinds of measures. Now it's not a one-to-one, -one. we're not trying to pit our index against the equality index. Um, we, we're, we're talking about what, what are you doing in your business practices from a policy and, and, and practice perspective that could impact free speech and religious freedom. And so there's a whole host of issues. I mean, I'll just name one of them. A lot of corporations, rightly so, have employee matching gift programs. They're trying to kind of engage their employees and, and allow them to give back to the community they live in in a way that's consistent with the employees' values and beliefs. Yet we found four out of 10 corporations expressly uh, eliminate religious institutions from those giving programs. Well, there's no reason corporations should stop religious employees. And there's a lot of them, not just Christian, but there's a whole lot of faiths represented inside of a workforce. Stop them from giving to charitable institutions just because they're religious in nature. And so, you know, it's one of the things about the low scores on our index is there's a lot of things corporations could do very quickly to really increase their scores overnight. And it seems like one of the easy ones is stop discriminating against your religious employees in relation to their giving options. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny talking about the, the HRC index. It, it reminds me of uh, an issue we've been dealing with in the States for years where uh, especially since the, the chambers of commerce in most States have now flipped and started supporting things like the equality act or, you know, in our, in Ohio, they call it the fairness act. And this is the bill that makes sexual orientation and gender identity uh, protected class. Uh, and they've, they've used the argument, Oh, that this is good for business. And we have to pass this or else, uh, you know, our economy is going to tank and they'll, they'll typically, uh, you know, their, their backup for this is something like they'll pull college students and say, do you want to work in a state where you could be fired because you're gay? Uh, or, you know, it's these really over the top questions that, you know, have no basis in reality um, and say, we've got to pass this. And we'll, or we'll never recruit top talent and we'll never recruit top uh, businesses here, uh, which, again, made me laugh because uh, they just had that press conference not too long ago. And then uh, not shortly after that, uh, Intel announced that they were going to build this massive, you know, twenty billion dollar plant in Ohio, uh, even though we don't have one of these uh, Soji bills. Uh, but ADF at the time, I remember this was about five years ago. You guys uh, put out uh, a ranking of Forbes. You took Forbes top ten states for business, um, and I think eight out of the ten were uh, were states that did not have uh, a Soji law in place. Um, and, and it's been, you know, again, just one more example of showing the, how these folks have no basis in reality for the arguments that they make. Well, right. And the reality is pe what people really want is a workplace where they can come to work, have and share the values that they have, whether they've come from a religious or a political basis, and not fear retaliation, firing, demotion. That's what they want. They want a place where 
you know, they're not going to be faced with, uh, you know, political activism by the corporation they work for that makes them feel like they might lose their livelihood if they express a, dis- you know, dis- a, a different opinion. And we're actually putting us, we have a survey in the field right now where we're going to be studying employees' opinions related to these issues. What kind of workplace do you want to work at? Do you want to work at a workplace that cultivates and fosters an atmosphere that's open to diverse religious and political viewpoints? Or, you know, and how do you, how would you react to a corporation that takes, you know, narrow political positions on contentious issues? And so we're studying that right now. We'll probably have the results out in August just to add to this conversation. I think what we're going to find is that employees want to work at places where they feel like their views are going to be tolerated and they don't have to risk their livelihood because they hold particular political or religious views. Yeah. Well, Jeremy Tedesco, uh, Senior Counsel at uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, thanks for taking time to be here with us. Uh, so folks that want to connect more with what you're doing, you said viewpointdiversityscore.com. Uh, any place else? dot org dot org uh, any place else for them to to go to viewpointdiversityscore.org any place else for them to get connected with you jeremy that's the main place to go but they can always go to our you know flagship website adflegal.org to find out about the broad scope of our work in courts and legislatures and, and across the movement issues Awesome. Hey, Jeremy, really appreciate you being gracious with your time. Thanks for all that you've done uh, for the church and for Christians all over this country. Uh, And thanks for everyone for joining us on the narrative. Again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we've gotten some really great uh, emails and and comments online about uh, the the podcast this season. We appreciate all the feedback. If you can, uh, wherever you receive this, get this podcast, give us a rating, give us a review, uh, leave a comment for us. Uh, Good or bad, we'll take them both ways. But I know David can be a little sensitive sometimes, but we'll we'll, we'll, we'll keep him uh, him encouraged. Uh, But we'll we'll be uh, back next time here on The Narrative.